and welcome to I Can Make That, Conversations with Creatives. I am Katie McKinley and I'm a self-proclaimed maker of things. My family and I live and die by the code of DIY and naturally we found ourselves surrounded by people who lead some pretty creative lives themselves. I've decided to stop selfishly hogging all of my brilliant and wacky friends and to start sharing them with you. Behind every finished project is a human being who went through a range of successes and failures in making and in life, and it's about time that we get to know just who those talented individuals are. Welcome back, everyone. I can't believe that we are on our ninth episode already. My guest today is someone that, if you follow me in any version of social media, you probably already know. He is my cheerleader, my right-hand man, at times my punching bag, and my honest-to-goodness best friend. I draw so much inspiration and energy from him on a daily basis, and I'm lucky enough to have been married to him for the last ten and a half years. Bennett McKinley is a comic book-loving, nerdy, creative mastermind, born and raised and currently living in Wheeling, West Virginia. He's pretty well known in our city for the Meet Me in the Alley photography project, which concluded back in 2015. He also is the the behind-the-scenes coordinator and worker bee for our handmade business, Thread and Grain. And most recently, he put down his camera and picked up his textbooks and has been pursuing his degree in elementary education. Bennett and I have one brilliant little boy together, and we spend the majority of our time as a trio making good and bad versions of art and leaving messes everywhere while we do it. I am giddy to formally introduce you to him. Welcome to I Can Make That, Bennett. Hi, honey. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I can feel the eye roll coming my way already, but I feel like we do have to talk about this. It was important and impactful, and it took a ton of our lives. Meet Me in the Alley was a photography project that you unintentionally started, but it became such a huge thing in Wheeling. And to be honest, it was also the reason why we basically have all the friends that we do now. So can you explain the project and what it meant to you? Sure. It's funny to still be talking about it, but... It's still very much a part of people's lives. People still have their profile photos as the photo taken in the alley. So it it kind of started innocently enough, unintentionally. I was taking photos for a friend, Glenn, and he was asking for some professional headshots, that sort of thing. And we went outside, and I took a shot just kind of, um, hey, let's just try this. The lighting is kind of neat in the alley. Uh, Let's see how it looks. And it looked phenomenal. Someone said, hey, Bennett, run with this. Try to use this as a project or uh, some sort of, you know, larger than just one photo kind of idea. And I dismissed it at first. I thought surely it would never go anywhere. Uh, At best, you would come to the alley (laughs) and our son would come to the alley. Maybe my folks, but um, I never expected it to go anywhere. Well, sure enough, it started with you and Louie and my folks. And then friends came, and then their friends came, and then their friends' friends came, until it was literally just, I was pulling people off the street, strangers of whom I had zero connections with, were coming and participating in this alley project. And what it essentially was, was I would just post on social media saying, hey, I'm going to the alley today, I'll be there between one and three if you want to get your picture taken for free. You're more than welcome to come. It's all-inclusive. I welcome everybody. And that's what I did. I'd take two pictures in the alley. I would take one black and white photo and one color photo. 
both would be distributed to the people, to the to the models of the alley. And then I posted one to a uh, gallery. And like I said, it started off small, one or two people, and then it grew to 1,132 people was the final count. There were horses, cats, dogs, um, cars, trucks, metal elephants, and all varieties of people. Part of the like impact of the project really was we asked people for three descriptive words uh, about themselves, and I guess words or phrases, but I can't even remember what mine were. Mine was maker, mama... Do you remember Creator what Creator of all things. Yeah, I, maker of things. I don't know what it was. But a lot of people, it took a lot of time for them to kind of just think of like, how do you break yourself down into three descriptive phrases? And just, it was really kind of cool because you felt like you got to know these people from just like three words mm-hmm. that were listed on these. Mm-hmm. And it really was all walks of life. And oh, gosh, yeah. It was really neat. Was there a portrait that impacted you the most that you did of all the people? Or I guess animals? You know, looking back now, um, it is uh, inevitable, but it's always heartbreaking to me looking back on photos of those that have since passed away. I would say in particular, one person kind of sticks out. Tor was quite the character in life, but also in his photo. I took his photo and obviously sent it to him like I did everyone else, but he took it a step further and took the image and put it onto a t-shirt that he would wear around town, and that one always sticks out with me. Yeah, he was he was a guy that if you met him, you never forgot that you met him. He Larger was a very life. interesting person, and he was, he was fun to have there. I guess this is something that uh, the world needs to know, but mostly I need to know, and it has been asked many times. Oh, my gosh. Do you have any plans? For a reunion tour. It has been five years officially since its conclusion. I think a five-year comeback tour would be kind of fun. I don't think I can add another ball to be juggled right now. I love the idea of reconnecting with all of those people that participated in the past. And I love the idea of creating another snapshot of, you know, the, the wheeling life. Um, but I just, I can't, <laughs> I can't add that to my plate. Now... In a few more years, maybe, maybe, maybe a 10-year reunion we could work out. Uh, but for now, there's nothing on the agenda. So for you fellow Wheelingites that are listening, Hang on. start start harassing Bennett now <laughs> so we can just kind of be an earwig at all times and then we can make it happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it can't just be his wife that does this. So talking about photography even deeper, have you had any formal training in it? Was it always a passion of yours? Like, how did you even get started in in doing what you've done so far? No, and, and the the basic answer to those questions are no. I didn't have any formal training, and that's always kind of been almost a guilty. Um, I don't want to say shame, but like, you know, people go and study the arts for for photography specifically for it, and and I just kind of rushed in. I liked taking pictures as a kid. I mean, I always had some sort of camera, whether it be a throwaway or an old, old school digital or Polaroid. I would say it kind of started in college, actually, after I'd met you, you know. You stole my camera. Yeah, I would steal your camera and I would, you know, try and do crazy experiments where I would uh, take long exposures of lights moving and and how how I could influence it to make it look more interesting. 
and it kind of grew from there. It, it was never, it was just maybe a hobby at best. As technology kind of grew, it made it easier for me to experiment more and, and not worry about the 32 megabyte uh, memory card. As those gigabyte cards came out, I was able to experiment more and worry less. Um, and that's kind of when it took off for me. It was, you know, experimenting with light. And it's it was always about that. It was, how can I make light do interesting things on, on film or in the camera? And um, so some of the earliest project I started, you know, was breaking light bulbs. And it sounds weird, but the filament of one of the old school light bulbs when exposed to open oxygen environment without the glass bulb around it, um, it'll burn up its thousand hour lifespan in the matter of, you know, 1.2 seconds. And so to catch that with a high speed, you know, a, a shot, you're able to get this plume of just brilliant, brilliant color and flame and energy. And I had to, I really mastered how to break a light bulb at, at the end there, but I had to have broken hundreds of light bulbs probably yeah can we can we complain about that a little bit how many light but how many broken light bulbs did we get through before you actually got the shots that you were looking for yeah yeah it was a lot um and then you know there's a natural progression um obviously in the night sky there there are lights that we are graced with every night you know we got the stars in the sky and so i like to take long exposure astrophotography stuff and capture star trails and and planes traveling in the sky and satellites uh and then uh, technology had another big bump and I, I started introducing leds and crazy toys um and you know i i kicked i helped fund the kickstarter for a pixel stick which was a cool and actually we still have it um a six foot tall stick uh, for lack of a better word Made that housed pixels. yeah that housed uh <laughs> I think a hundred pixel or LEDs and um, you can plug in the memory card. It has a memory card adapter and you plug it into your computer, um, take an image. And when you put it onto the pixel stick, it displays that image as long as you are moving the pixel stick and are taking a long exposure photo. So I would be able to put a, you know, slice of pizza down at the uh, Wheeling waterfront or, uh, you know, put a sushi roll somewhere. Basically lots of food stuff. I like food. And it kind of, it's like Photoshopping without actually Photoshopping yeah. in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of my favorite ones was um, the elephants. Just after Bobo the elephant was installed in downtown, which is a giant life-size uh, stainless or aluminum. I can't I think remember. it's steel. Uh, kit, former kitchen equipment, though, uh, uh, broken apart and transformed into a, an enormous elephant in downtown Wheeling. I went to the elephant at night and displayed, gosh, what were they? A Horton? Um, all, all the various animated elephants that have been Dumbo. out there. Dumbo and Horton and oh, there are a couple other ones. But uh, I thought that was so fun, you know, and it was such a easy thing to do without using Photoshop. And you also used to do a lot of, um, which would always freak me out when you did it. The pictures are cool, but the, the process is horrifying. Steel wool spinning. Listen, I only burnt myself like three or four and times. And put holes in so many of your Lots jackets. Lots of clothing got burned, yes. But personal injury was only a few times. So, <laughs> uh, so steel wool is, uh, yeah, that's 
if I were to 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 mark a favorite of light painting photography, it would definitely be steel wool. Um, you just stick a pad of steel wool inside of a, a cooking whisk. You light it on fire. You can even just ignite it with a nine volt battery. Uh, if you connect both ends to the steel wool, it creates a short and, and sparks the wool. Once it's burning, if you spin it, the um, pieces of the steel wool that are burning will fall out. And if you're taking a long exposure, as you're spinning that, those sparks will uh, be sent across, you know, a, a, well, not room. It'll, it'll be, but it'll be, I hope not inside a room. Uh, But it'll be, you know, just sent out and the long exposure picture will capture all of them. And I've been lucky enough to have a lot of amazing friends that have gone out with me. Um, Will Wallace and I created a, uh, some phenomenal stuff. Um, in kind of abandoned industrial areas, and that was a fun night. But that was, uh, yeah, steel wool is really, really pretty neat. Yeah, and because you have such a love for light painting, most of your photography has to be done in the in the black of night, which yeah. is mm-hmm. always really interesting and not really a summer sport because it doesn't get dark for so late, and we're old people who need to go to bed early. It's true. <laughs> yeah. And you did do, we have done, um, I usually second shot for photos. So when Mm -hmm. I say we, it really was we. We have uh, done family photos and weddings and events and things, but um, it's not really been your forte or your passion, I guess. Yeah, that's that's fair. And I I would say that's why I've kind of put that aside. Um, You know, having to, and I shouldn't even say having to, but... Taking pictures of babies and families and weddings, um, I guess weddings were fun, but it, families and babies, it's just not my thing. I, I don't, uh, having to take pictures and, and having to meet the expectations of people, it, it wasn't fun for me. And so it became a chore, it became something I didn't want to do. And uh, so why would I force myself to do that? Weddings, events, those were still fun because you're uh, being such an interesting part of such an amazing big day for people. I think part of it is that we don't like forced creativity either, yeah. and we like to be creative on our own terms and our own time. So when you're like hired by someone to do it, it's yeah. it, and having to compete with all of the you know crazy Pinterest people out there that have created interesting but crazy baby pictures and family pictures and yeah, and a level of expectation is just not necessarily like our style or yeah. your style. Yeah, so that's fair. yeah, we I I don't know. I think that's usually. And we're, we're true artists where we have highs and lows and we, we have so much creativity and then we have like none. Yeah. A fun fact about the makeup of our family is that you were and still really are the primary caregiver in our family. Let's talk about your experience as a stay-at-home dad. Gosh, yeah. That has been probably the largest, most you know, defining factor of my life. Our son has shaped who I am today and getting to be home with him from day one was such a unique experience but also um, uh, such a a fortunate one for me you know so many parents don't get to uh, spend the amount of time I've gotten to spend with my son much less the the fathers Um, and you know there's nothing to be said about that it's just that's life it happens Um, I am just really thankful every day that I got to do that and um you know, pursuing uh, a career in education, I'm luckily going to be able to continue that. I'm able, I'm going to be able to have, you know, holidays and vacations with him. So we're not going to have to rely on childcare, and that's pretty phenomenal. 
Hopefully. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting. Um, I I never personally experienced it, but there's so many uh, stay-at-home dads out there that have been, I, mean, I don't want to use the word persecuted, but it kind of, you know, it's it's one of these things where stay-at-home fathers are are viewed with a stigma and you know there's this idea that like oh well you didn't succeed so you just became a dad um and that's horrendous to say or think about anyone um because i would never think about that you know for a woman it's and it's so commonplace for women to be stay-at-homes um and it's to the point you know that the the what was it the dads aren't babysitters because um that's what the U.S. census takers were told you know, several years back. You know, Stay-at-home moms, thats you are able to put that on a census. As a caregiver. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, stay-at-home fathers, was it was just marked as, as essentially being a babysitter. Uh, and that's, that's terrible because I would consider myself a stronger role in, in our son's life than, than that. Well, and the gender divide seems so odd, too, because you would take Louie more places than I would, and there weren't, like, changing stations in the men's uh, yeah. bathrooms. And yeah. But it was, it was just it's such an odd difference that we're supporting or expecting something of one set of parents and not the other, and it's just been... She's, um, she's tearing up, people. I am not. <laughs> it's It's been a long journey, and it's really been cool, and it's funny because he now is going into transitioning I guess into another role where it's more predominantly female also so um that's just kind of the lifestyle that we've like entered into I Mm -hmm. don't know I think another good thing about being a stay-at-home was it it gave me the opportunity the chance to also flex my creative my creativity you know whereas I I may have been uh stuck in some job in which you know we're using the money from that to pay for childcare. uh I was able to do experiments with Louie and you know create works of art with him and and um it it's it was wonderful for many many reasons to be able to stay at home with him and a lot of jealousy always came from me oh over yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> good jealousy but jealousy nonetheless and around four years ago we already talked about it a little bit but you decided to go back to school mm-hmm. and get a degree in elementary education yeah. what made you decide to take this particular path oh come on our son um, you know, my son is the, like I said, the biggest, you know, shaper of my life getting to do all of those things with him, like create art and science experiments and all of that was amazing. But then luckily enough, um, we enrolled him in a school that welcomes that kind of involvement and that parental role. Um, and I think it was at around kindergarten. It was when he was in kindergarten that, you know, the wonderfully amazing and gracious teachers um shout out miss claire and miss linda yeah they let me come in and do things like bring in the bearded dragon and talk about some crazy island in alaska and do all these projects and it was kind of like a a a light bulb went off and i i was hey this is kind of what i want to do with my life and it was almost as if i had found what i want to do when i grow up and to have that is so so amazing so I pursued it, and I got enrolled and started pursuing a degree in uh, elementary education, and it was a further confirmation. That light bulb, that click happened more and more as I pursued this, you know, going into student, or not student teaching back then, but 
just field work, you know, being in classrooms, working with kids, it's kind of like, yeah, this is what I want to do. Um, because I can't tell you how many times now I've heard kids just saying like how much it meant to them for me to, to be a part of helping them with their homework and, and to be a part of their life just by being there, just by caring. And, um, then of course, obviously to help them with their education and help them grow as human beings, it's powerful and it's so rewarding. Now I'm not going to say it's not challenging because dear Lord, I've had some challenging moments and, and, um, but as challenging as those moments have been, the rewarding times have been tenfold more present than the other. You grew up in a family of people who always had a path for themselves. Mm -hmm. Like your dad always wanted to be an engineer. Your mom always wanted to be a nurse. Your all of your family members are entrepreneurs in some way, and and you like I think felt this pressure to decide what you wanted to be, and like it never came. Yeah, I guess it never came. But now it's here. Like finally, it presented itself. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would love to say that I didn't. Um, I, I tried not to ever succumb to that pressure, and and uh, I don't think I did. I think I was always just trying. I was on a path to try and figure out who I was. That's why I've done so many things, like you know, hospitality and tourism, working as a night auditor for hotels, and. Uh, photography and stay-at-home dad and you know doing all these random paths um, and I think all of them just kind of led to this decision and I've made this comment probably more times than I should have but I generally don't think we need more men in the in any version of a workforce like <laughs> men, men generally dominate every level but I really truly do think in the education field and specifically in elementary education that we need more men having a positive male influence can be so important to children especially in their early years and um, I just think it's really cool that you're there and doing it yeah I mean there's been so many examples where that that's come true it's clear that some of the kids I've worked with they just need that that male role model in their life and and it's it's great that I can you know be that for them and going back to school in your 30s is one thing (laughs) but you did pick a profession that is by far predominantly female what's it been like to be the only male and 10 years ish older than the majority of your classmates you know honestly it's been great the the girls that I've worked with are going to be amazing amazing teachers and I think, if anything, <clears throat> I've learned a lot from them. But I also hope that I've kind of imparted, you know, my sage old man wisdom <laughs> on them. Um, but no, they're they're all awesome people. And um, despite that, yeah, you know that that divide, uh, we've all gotten along and, and created some good friendships. And and like I said, they're going to be awesome teachers. You're like their dad in the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we were taking that group picture for a Christmas party, and I, you know, had my hands on my hips and my girls next to me, and I just felt like a proud dad. He looked like a proud papa. Yeah. You're really just starting out in this field, but you've found yourself infusing your strengths in arts into the classroom already. I can only imagine that it's going to be growing exponentially from here, but through some of your current educational training, you've become a cohort member of the Fluency Project. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even going to pretend I can explain it. So do you want to say what the Fluency Project is? You know, it's funny. Um, every cohort member, every member of this project that I've talked to, they kind of all give different answers. Uh, none of us are really sure how you can define it, how you can um, describe what the project is, because it's not a project. 
It's a fluency project, not a project. And that sounds counterintuitive. That sounds weird, but it, it's true because it's so much more than that. The fluency project began at Carnegie Mellon and with the Create Lab in Pittsburgh. They work with schools on integrating technology into the classroom, but that's such a tricky, uh, that's such a slippery slope because often technology in the classroom can be misinterpreted as kind of like, well, it's just a wow factor. Okay, it's neat and shiny technology, but it, the kids aren't learning anything. The Fluency Project, it, it is integrating technology that is incredibly useful and also incredibly educational. Helping kids understand coding, helping kids understand how to build and create things. Because technology, you know, sure it's this computer, sure it's this crazy microphone, but it's technology can be described as simple as things as like a wheel. It's just an incredible project. But I think what makes it so incredible uh, are certainly the people that are running it. Um, however... You're just trying to get brownie points yes, right now. yeah. But also all of the various teachers that are also co cohort members um, because they are showing that they care about their class, about their kids, about their school, about their community. And they want to, um, you know, they want to better themselves as teachers. And that's, I think, if I were to put it into a nutshell, the Fluency Project is about helping teachers become the best teachers that they can be. And just a couple of months ago, we went to Pittsburgh and... Louie and I spent our time just bouncing around places in the city, but you went to a Maker's Ed convention? Yeah, it's called The Convening. I, I'm not really sure why. I've never really looked into it. Um, but yeah, so The Maker Ed Convening was a really, really cool experience. Uh, Lou Karras, the director for the Center of Arts and Ed at uh, my college, she invited me. She's also a cohort. She's helping run the Fluency Project, but she invited me and a handful of other students to this convention. Um, and the dope that I am, I didn't really look into it too much. A, a, a maker's convention sounded right up my alley because that's what I am. I love to make. If you hand me cardboard, I'm going to create something really... You're wicked awesome with cardboard. I, I don't understand it. <laughs> I don't either. I can just make stuff with cardboard. And I get there, and I get there early because I like to just be early for things. Because we're nerds and we like to be early. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sitting down, I get my swag, and I'm so excited because there's raspberry pies and cool things. And um, a guy sits down with me, and we start talking and just, you know, general, who are you? What do you do? And he runs a makerspace out of Oakland, California. I say, huh, okay. Another guy sits down. He runs a makerspace out of uh, somewhere in Virginia. And so it was just this kind of, like, aha moment where I realized I'm out of my league this is not just a small local convention, you know, for the Pittsburgh area teachers or, or educators or makers. This is a national thing. And it was really stinking cool to get to talk to these people that are shaping their communities and helping kids, you know, do things that they would not even know is possible. Um, and it got me stoked. It got me so excited to, to be a part of this and do things. One of the um, one of the sessions was um, actually the guy that had the makerspace in Virginia. Um, he wanted to get girls into coding. I mean, that's a, such a huge hot topic thing right now. Um, but all the projects that he was trying, they just never got into it. You know, he was trying to do a um, monitoring traffic in a certain area, and none of the girls wanted to. So he's okay. 
let me meet you halfway. Let's do wearable technology and we'll create a fashion show. And it was just like, it spread like wildfire. He had to turn girls away and these girls came out and they had to learn both how to program LEDs and crazy te- technology and microphones. Uh, but then they also would have to learn how to sew it and work it into clothing and use this electronic wire that would loop from the battery pack on the belt to some display on their hands. Um, and it grew to the point that, you know, they exceeded their budget because they hired people to come and help run a fashion show and teach them how to sew. And, and, and I wanted to do it. (laughs) I have zero desire to join your world of fashion and, and creating of clothing I was listening to this guy and just his his genuine sense of excitement and, and love of learning and teaching um, got me just so excited. And it was such a, a groundbreaking thing for me to be part of. And I really hope I can go to another one sometime. I really, I honestly wish everyone was in the car with us on the way home after the first day. It was two days long. We only went to Pittsburgh, Louie and I, the first day, but... On the way home, like, Bennett couldn't stop talking. (laughs) He was just over the moon about everything that he did, everyone that he met, everything that he learned. And he was like, let's open a makerspace in Wheeling, (laughs) (laughs) which is a great idea. But it was a little far, like, beyond where we're sitting right now. So it was just funny. It was a very cool thing for him to participate in. And I guess this might be a little off topic, and not really, but more more than anything. She's tearing up again, guys. (laughs) I just, I would really like to explain my husband in a nutshell. And the best way to do this is in one story, which might drag out too long. So I apologize if it happens. So he's a very curious person with this like never ending need for information. And if he comes across something that interests him in the slightest, like it just a minute thing. It could be a meme that shoots across his feed when he's on Reddit he, like, has to learn about it. And not just learn, like, he has to learn about it. (laughs) And he gets lost in this web of, like, knowledge and information. And the best story, again, the best story to explain this is a story of Atu, Alaska. (laughs) And and it all All started. It all started. I guess let's give the beginning and the end, and then you can fill in the middle. But he watched a video of a bearded man happily dancing to an Alicia Keys song. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then it ended with him having our son's entire class correspond with a school of 10 kids, right? 10 kids? Uh, there were 20, I think. Oh, I'm sorry, 20. 20 kids, but it was K through 12 in this like remote island on in Alaska. So... <laughs> So YouTube video man dancing ends in us becoming pen pals with people who live on an island in Alaska and go. I mean, that's a, that's a great nutshell. And I hope I don't go overboard with explaining it um, or expanding it, I should say. So it was, it was funny. It was one of those. And I didn't think I ever looked up memes that much, but apparently I do. Um, it was a meme. It was the guy dancing to Alicia Keys, and the, the text was like, leaving work on a Friday. And, uh, you know, I clicked on the comments or something, and the very first one was something along the lines of, you know, you're, you're stealing this without giving credit to the to the 
to the dancer, to the artist, Justin Lawrence Hoyt. And so I went to face or I went to YouTube and, and um, looked it up and found, sure enough, there's the video. And what, what sucked was the meme video that, you know, I don't even remember what company or what, you know, who shared it. But they had 500,000 views on that. And the guy's original video, the original artist, um, he only had like 5,000 or 10,000. I mean, since then, it's, it's blown up a lot. But I felt bad for the guy, so I was watching the video because it was just his dancing. I wish I had the moves that <laughs> Justin had. It was dorky, happy dancing. Yes. Yes. Anyway. Um, and so he's dancing, and on the back, he's dancing across a dock. And on the back of one of the boats was the text identifying where the boat's from, Huna, Alaska. And I have always been a fan of Google Earth. I've loved just exploring it's things like that obnoxious. I can't. I can't otherwise explore. So I went to Huna, Alaska. Hey, there's a brewery right next to where the guy was dancing. Because I was able to kind of piece together. All right, there's the dock. Okay. And <clears throat> so I was, I was really enjoying exploring Huna. And so I decided to follow the coastline. Let's find some other really small towns in Alaska. And, you know, I scoured the coastline and found some really interesting little tiny um, you know, inlet villages and towns. And then... You know, okay, well, I hit the Aleutian Isles, so I decided to follow out the islands that, that form the chain leading away from Alaska towards Russia. And I'm going along through each one, and I'm seeing lots of airports, lots of clear signs of, um, you know, naval bases, Air Force bases, etc. Finally, I hit the last island, and it's called Attu Island. And it was really, really interesting because... The island was um, speckled with clear um, remnants of a huge naval base. Maybe it was Air Force. I can't remember. Um, you know, you could see where the where barracks were. You could see where oil tanks were. There were there's clear indentations on the ground. Uh, there's still a small facility there. It's I think uh, mostly bird watching. Actually, it's huge bird birding area. <laughs> um, but uh, Okay, but it's uninhabited, you know, right? Like, okay, some people go there to, to look at birds, but it's mostly uninhabited. So let's go back east. Let's, that's the westernmost. Oh, and actually, can I talk about a two more? So, all right. So a two was a naval base during World War II. It was the only world, only U.S. soil that was occupied by foreign invaders in World War II. Uh, Japan took over the island and occupied the island for actually a good while. And it was a really bloody battle to take it back. And it's that's such a, a remarkable, unique story. And it's not taught. It's not something that people know about. Also, Bennett and his entire family are huge history nerds. Yes. So this is like gold for him. But it is uninhabited. Rich, rich, amazing history uninhabited. Let's go back east. Let's find what's the next island that's inhabited come to Adak, Adak, Alaska. And um, I'm exploring Adak, and I can see it's a very small town. Um, I think at its peak, they usually have about about 300 people. Um, you know, it's a whole industry is based on tourism and hunting. And, and, um, and then I see the school, which is, I can't even say doubling, it's quintupling as the post office, the city hall, the police and fire department, uh, the school, and probably a handful of other things. Um, 
and there was a link to the ADAC school system. And of course, I think it was like the Aleutian Isle education system or something. But, uh, and this was before I was even getting into education, I think. I mean, it was, yeah, it was before you went back to yeah, school. Yeah, because what happened was um, I found the teacher's name because it's one teacher. And um, so I sent an email to Miss Molly. You just cold called her yeah. via email. Like, I found you yeah. from Google Earth. Here's really I'm going to email you. <laughs> Uh, so I expected one of two things, either the email would just go into their spam box or she would think I'm a crazy person. But sure enough, Miss Molly wrote back like a couple hours later and, you know, I said, Hey, this is going to seem weird, but I would love to, maybe could we establish some sort of pen pal system? Um, and Miss Molly was totally into it. And, uh, my son and one of her girls from ADAC Alaska got to be in contact for, with a couple letters. Um, well, in his entire, when he was in kindergarten, so this yeah. was a few years ago, the whole kindergarten class was, Sent I think it videos. was like two or three correspondence mm. back and forth, like Valentine's Day cards and something else, like between, yeah. it took a while for things to get back and forth because they have one plane. Yeah, every Wednesday. Every Wednesday that it brings them mail. <laughs> but regardless, your YouTube video watching yeah. turned into us, like forming a friendship with people. In Alaska. Thousands and thousands of miles away on a small remote island. So if you followed that whole story, that is my husband in a nutshell for <laughs> literally everything we ever do. Yeah, and fair. it's uh and it could be in creative things and it could just be because he, you know, wanted what? to just learn. <laughs> and so yeah, anyway. Thought that was a fun story to oh, share. Yeah. Okay. So this is the last thing that I ask everybody and I I'm not getting you out of this one, even though you're married to me. Um, what is something that people would find surprising about you? Oh, my gosh. You even gave me this ahead of time. I know. I warned you. And I still don't know. I So, I don't know. I'm really bad at swimming. I can't tread water. <laughs> um, but I love to swim. I, and I swim underwater, I think, pretty decently. I just, I'm not very great at it. Um, like if you were shipwrecked, you would just probably drown yeah, because you can't I can keep yourself float. above water. I can float though. I mean, I can lay on my back and float all day. Um, I don't know. What's something else? I, I, and I'm, I think I'm an amazing cook, but I am a horrible baker. Like to the point that what I bake looks like vomit. In yeah. A you made vomit tray. cookies one time. Yeah. Um, it's because you don't like to follow directions. No, and that that goes back to that you know creator maker mentality. I I like to experiment and throw things in. Um, I don't know, man. That's that's the best I can come up with for something surprising. Yeah, I don't know. Pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Bennett, for agreeing to join me on the show. You're welcome, Katie. <laughs> I thought it'd be fun to bring you out into the spotlight a little bit, even if I am nervous that people will start liking you more than me like everyone in real life does. Yeah. <laughs> As for our listeners, thank you a million times over for tuning in to the ninth episode of I Can Make That Conversations with Creatives. As always, I will leave links in my blog post to everything. I plan to share a couple of Bennett's light painting pictures so you can understand what he's talking about with the broken light bulbs and, and the, the steel wool. Dancing video. And maybe I'll link the Justin dancing video. And also I will link our indie business. You can find us at threadandgrain.com as well as on Facebook and Instagram at threadandgrain. See you next time.
I can make that conversations with creatives transcripts from this episode along with links and more information about today's guests can be found at www.wildandwonderful.com see you next time creatives